Hello, and welcome to the five-day reading plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, as you probably know by now, and each week I will be leading us through and uh, some of the highlights that we've read during the week. You can download a copy of this reading plan, by the way, in the description of this podcast, or just go to fivedaybiblereading.com and you can find it there. This week we read 1 Kings 19 through the end of that book, 2 Kings 1 through 6, 2 Chronicles 17 through 20, Psalm 129, 20, and 48, and Matthew 1 through 5. We ended our King's reading last week with the high point of Elijah's ministry, the fire from heaven that came down on Mount Carmel. The living God revealed his might and power, and the prophets of Baal saw ultimate defeat. Elijah was vindicated, and for one little moment we saw the people exclaim what has been true all along, the Lord, he is God. But then something curious happens, doesn't it? This week we read Elijah spiraling into discouragement and now depression when he hears of Jezebel's threats against him. This wonderful prophet of God feels all alone and doesn't know how he can go on. And we see in in one of these chapters, as, as Elijah lay asleep, he's awoken twice by an angel who commands him to eat. That's an interesting first step, isn't it? It's almost like there's a connection between our physical and spiritual health sometimes. And in Elijah's case, it broke him free from his despair and got him moving again. Later in a cave, God approaches Elijah and twice asks him, What are you doing here? I thought back to the Garden of Eden here where God sought Adam by asking, Where are you, Adam? Sometimes in Scripture, God approaches his people with a question, doesn't he? It is, of course, not a question from ignorance, but more of conviction or challenge. And as he tells Elijah to go, he notes something Elijah has not contemplated. He is not as alone as he assumed. He's never been. Not only has God watched over him, but he says there are 7,000 others who also haven't taken a knee to Baal. I know that sometime in my walk with God, I can feel really alone. But I like to remember, as I hope you remember with me, like Elijah needed to remember, we are never alone. God is with us, and our brothers and sisters around the world are still worshiping and following him. And I think about this some Sundays as I'm driving to church when the sun is rising. I remind myself that millions of believers around the world are doing the same thing I'm doing right now. They're going into a house of worship. Some have already done so, and some are are about to do so, but I know this, that as I drive to church every Sunday morning, I realize millions of people around the world are doing the same thing, and this goes on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So if we belong to Christ, one thing is certain, and Elijah had to know this too, we are not alone. We are part of an army that has been guaranteed future and final victory. I hope that you are deeply involved in a local church where you know others and others know you, a place where you can see brothers and sisters face-to-face week after week, a place where you can go for encouragement in the tough times, and a place of rest in a world where peace eludes us. Being involved regularly in a healthy body of believers is just another way to remind us each week that we are not alone. And you know, some Sundays... I walk away and it's been a great Sunday and some days are just I just don't feel that way but one of the things I never feel is alone. 
Well, Ahab and Jezebel are a real piece of work, aren't they? In fact, you never hear people name their kids Jezebel, Ahab, or Judas. I've found that to be true. Those names are don't go down as the biblical names people use today, but they are a piece of work. Ahab is evil, and Jezebel is just ruthless. They possess a lot of earthly power, but they can't escape the gaze of a holy God who speaks to Ahab through Elijah. In 1 Kings 22, we see an example of bad prophets versus good ones. Apparently, Ahab had lined up a group of prophets to consult for decisions, but they were more like yes-men. So as Ahab and Jehoshaphat consult together, an unusual move for Jehoshaphat, who is an otherwise admirable king, Jehoshaphat nudges Ahab to consult with the Lord before going into battle. So Ahab gathers his 400 men who feed him the answer he wants. But Jehoshaphat smells a rat and asks, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here anymore? Of course there is. And of course Ahab does not like him because he's the only one who tells him the truth. Quick note here before proceeding. Are you listening only to the theologians who tell you what you want to hear? Or are you seeking out Christian guides who will tell you the truth even when it hurts? There can be some confusion here in 1 Kings 22, 15, and 16, where the true prophet Micaiah gives the same message to Ahab as his yes-men, but then, then is rebuked. When you read this, you might have asked yourself, what's going on here? And you may have also figured, though, that Micaiah's first response is simply sarcasm. He knows that Ahab doesn't want the truth. He knows that Ahab, in the words of Colonel Jessup, can't handle the truth. And in the end, Micaiah is willing to be tested by the mark of a true prophet in 22:28. And as we read of Ahab's downfall, we see once again that evil men can't hide from a holy God. Ahab could disguise himself all he wanted, but it would be the sovereign hand of God that would guide a random arrow in just the right chink in his armor. And Ahab, we see, dies in disgrace as the dogs lick up his blood and prostitutes bathe in it. What in the world? Hmm. In contrast, Jehoshaphat in Judah is one of the good kings. He's one of the better kings. His alliance with Ahab was an unwise decision, but aside from that, we will see this week and next the exemplary king Jehoshaphat was. By the way, as you read Matthew 1 through 5, or as you read it this past week, you may have thought to yourself, Herod and Ahab must be related. They were both selfish and evil kings who looked out for themselves and not for others. Both did evil deeds, and both will go down in infamy in biblical history. And so I thought that was interesting how we read of both kings in that same week. But back to our Old Testament and 2 Kings. As seen at the end of 1 Kings, Elijah is back in business now, confronting the ungodly in the land, as second, and, and as 2 Kings opened up, excuse me, it is as if no one learned a lesson on Mount Carmel. Instead of inquiring of God, Ahaziah sends his messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Then Ahaziah demands an audience with the man of God, Elijah, but it is vain to demand anything of God's prophets when you're consulting with false gods. Lesson learned in the rest of chapter 1. Wow. And now we see Elisha come on the scene. He will follow Elijah, and he will do even greater things, including feeding a multitude in chapter 4. Did you think of a couple of New Testament accounts when you read this? Remarkably similar. 
By the way, if you are a man who is losing his hair or has lost all his hair, you probably like the odd story in 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24. Lesson in this story, don't make fun of bald men, especially if you live near wild beasts. But just another one of the stories I never heard in Sunday school growing up, but I really would have paid attention had I. The story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5 is a popular story, as it should be. Here we have a highly respected man, but he is also helpless against a skin disease. He has the regard of others and he possesses earthly power, but there is something he simply cannot overcome. So he calls on Elisha. Unfortunately, at first, Naaman seems to want things on his own terms. He just wants, I think, a quick magic spell. Bathing in a filthy river is far below him. But we learn this in Scripture, don't we, that we can't come to God on our terms. This is true when it comes to healing and also when it comes to salvation. Many human beings are trying all kinds of religious exercises to be acceptable to the gods they worship. But there is really only one way to be saved, God's way, to bathe in the river of Christ's redemption. As the old hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Sounds gruesome, I know, but the cross was gruesome, and it is still God's only way to be healed. In Naaman's day, bathing in a river was below him, but it was God's only provision. In our day, humbling ourselves and admitting we need a Savior, a Savior who died, might seem below us. It reduces us to humility and complete dependence upon someone else. Our righteous acts are filthy rags, as Isaiah will write. All our good deeds are worthless without Christ. But if we come to him, if we come on God's terms, not our own, like Naaman, we will be healed. And once we do, we come to the same conclusion as he did. I know there's no God in the whole world but our God. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is that of Jehoshaphat and Judah in 2 Chronicles 20. You can tell by everything he does and prays that this is the kind of king God calls for. In the situation, you might remember Judah's backs are against the wall. A vast army approaches and is around 25 to 30 miles from Jerusalem, only one or two days journey away. And so there they march. They're coming in Dun, 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 dun. That's what, or it might be, depending on which movie you like, but enough with the movie references. All in all, Judah has no time to prepare, nor do they have the kind of numbers that they need for those coming up against them. For all practical purposes, Judah is hopeless. Their doom is a matter of when, not if. So what does this king do? Well, first, the text tells us what is going on inside of him. Verse 3, he was afraid. And I noted that sometimes our greatest acts of courage come from times of great fear. So what does he do as the clock is ticking? He proclaims a fast, and he gathers the nation to pray. What he does not do is what we might think he would normally do. He doesn't gather an army. He doesn't develop a battle plan. And there will be times for such things, but there's no time for that now. It's too late for that, and the numbers are too small. So after Jehoshaphat gathers the nation, he leads them in prayer. And I wondered as I, I've observed this story before, how should I pray when me and everyone around me is terrified? 
Well, what Jehoshaphat does is he first speaks of the greatness and might of God, the one who drove out the nations from the land promised to Israel, the one who fulfilled his promises, including the promises Solomon made at the dedication of the temple. Um, and then he tells God what is going on. I love this. He says, Here, here's the situation, Lord. Here's the situation. I know you know all things, but here's what's going on. Those nations who would not let your people pass through when they were coming from Egypt into the promised land, and the ones that you didn't punish for that, they are now coming to take us out. So Jehoshaphat says in so many words, this is how they repay us for not harming them. So then there's a request in verse 12, and the request is a rhetorical question. Will you not now judge them? Then he prays a prayer worth memorizing when our backs are to the wall. I've prayed this I don't know how many times in my Christian life. He says, we are powerless before this vast number. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Sometimes when I pray, I pray this same prayer. Lord, I don't know what to do here, but I look to you. And then I sort of just scream, help! And that's what he's doing here. We have got to have your help here, Lord. And then we see the outcome. The outcome is glorious, and the Lord rescues them. They don't even need to lift a finger. They just go toward that army. They start moving toward that army, and they just start praising the Lord, and the army falls under the mighty hand of God. On to the Psalms. You know, it's easy today to put our hope in politicians, isn't it? We want our party to be in power. We want our preferred candidates to win. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting righteous and just people in government, but as we know by experience and in Kings and Chronicles, there is no one truly perfect. There is no earthly ruler without fault. But Psalm 129.4 reminds us this, though. The Lord is righteous. Our God, our true ruler, is just. He never fails. He never falters. The psalmist in chapter 129 is attacked and oppressed. Things have not gone well with him. So he turns his gaze to the righteous God. It is good for us to support rulers and representatives who fight for righteousness and justice. But until the King of Kings returns to set things right, there will still be oppression and injustice. So let's hold loosely to human rulers and cling tightly to the one who is truly just and truly righteous, as the psalmist in Psalm 129 does. We also read Psalm 20, which goes really well with the Jehoshaphat account, doesn't it? God often delivers his people, not through horses and chariots, but through his mighty power. And in the New Testament, we started Matthew's gospel this week. The Bible I'm using puts any Old Testament references in Matthew in bold, and you will see lots of these throughout Matthew's gospel. Just another reminder to us that this book is a redemption story where all the parts are connected, leading us to our ultimate hope, Emmanuel, God with us. Aside from the genealogy in chapter 1, I counted at least 10 Old Testament references in chapters 1 through 4. Hey, even Satan quotes Scripture when he talks to Jesus. Of course, Jesus corrects the deceitful tactics of the tempter and accuser by quoting Scripture right back at him. I was thinking of those wise men, too. We often think of the Magi as three men or three people, but the text only tells us 
the, the number of gifts they brought. So we really don't know how many there were. But what I noted here is Matthew 2, 11, where it says they opened their treasures, which literally can be translated, they opened their treasure chests or treasure boxes. Apparently, these men traveled with many treasures, but out of such treasure boxes, they presented young Jesus with these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as you know. It might make for an interesting study to see what each gift symbolizes. I noted in chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus stayed in, in Egypt until Herod's death. Matthew uses a synonym for death here that is different from the common New Testament term. It can literally mean end, so that we can almost understand it this way. Jesus stayed in Egypt until the end of Herod. I kind of wonder here if the Holy Spirit through Matthew is telling us something significant here. Herod came to an end as a king and as a living human being, but this child will never come to an end, nor will his reign. Like Ahab, Herod thought he could outmaneuver God, but no one can outwit God's sovereign hand. Herod's strong presence in this gospel may have us asking early on, who is the true king here? Is it this powerful man who ravages innocent and helpless children, or is it this seemingly helpless child who cannot be harmed or killed, but who is destined for a greater throne? We also started the Sermon on the Mount this week, and we'll finish it next week. As you read Jesus' words in this sermon, pay attention to two things. One, how have you failed to meet the standards Jesus presents in this sermon? And two, how does Jesus help us to align with his ways once we've accepted our own inability to meet these standards? The Sermon on the Mount does many things for us, but perhaps the two most prevalent and obvious are this. First of all, it shows us that none of us can be as good as God. We simply can't measure up. I mean, even if we do everything right on the outside, Jesus exposes us in the inner recesses of our hearts. Secondly, though, it provides guidance on what to do when we see our own inner ugliness. Watch how, in this sermon, Jesus first points out our inadequacies, but refuses to leave us there. He coaches us then on what do we do when we find out we're inadequate in these areas. I'd like to close today with a brief praise to God as seen in the last line of the third psalm we've read, Psalm 48. This God, our God forever and ever, He will always lead us. And I pray that He will continue to lead us as we read through the Scriptures. And next week's readings, by the way, will be 2 Kings 7-12, through 2 Chronicles 21-24, through 24, the prophet Joel, Psalm 49, Psalm 50, Psalm 131, and finally Matthew 6 through 10. So join us next week for week 30 of the 5-Day Reading Plan Podcast. <laughs>